This is the waves. 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 Hello and welcome to the waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and the senator with the wacky wigs. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate and host of Outward, Slate's podcast about queer culture and politics. And I'm Julia Craven, a reporter here at Slate, where I cover a whole bunch of fun stuff. This week, we are talking about Kirsten Sinema, the senator from Arizona who holds the fate of the Democratic agenda and maybe American democracy in her hands. I wanted the waves to talk about cinema because she is a total enigma to me and to a lot of other people, uh, both personally and politically. I started writing about her a few years ago, mostly in the context of her wardrobe, which is very unconventional for a senator. It's actually only gotten weirder since she got elected to the Senate in 2018. Um, During COVID, you might have seen she's been wearing these like neon colored wigs since she wasn't able to go to a salon. She said it was to help remind people to continue social distancing during COVID. So I think you know, for people who had no need to pay much attention to her before the Democrats took power in the Senate and before she started holding up her own party's agenda, her fashion sense, which is totally crazy, and also the fact that she's a woman and the first openly bisexual member of Congress, it all made her seem a lot more progressive than she actually is. But You know, if you pay attention, you know, she bills herself as a moderate. Obviously, right now she's working against her own party in many ways, but her politics are pretty inscrutable, too. I mean, it's not clear whether she actually has any deeply held beliefs and if so, what they are, because she's changed her mind and her political orientation so many different times. Uh, Julia, why did you want to talk about cinema? Well, I can't stop thinking about her because even though she might not be as well known as Elizabeth Warren or Mitch McConnell, she does play a very pivotal role in politics right now. Mainly it's her support for the filibuster, which is effectively shelving the passing of any voting rights legislation for the foreseeable future. And the nation compared her most recent positioning on that to Barry Goldwater, which is striking. (laughs) (laughs) to say the least, um, up front. Um, So considering this and the way she handles very serious issues flippantly, I think she's somebody who's just worth getting into. We'll get into both of those issues, her bizarre demeanor and self-presentation and how she is using her disproportionate power in the Senate right now after the break. Let's start off by establishing who Kirsten Cinema used to be. Julia, what was she like when she entered politics in Arizona in the 2000s? When she first got into politics, she was actually a member of Arizona's Green Party. So she sat a little bit further left than she does currently. And so she switched over from the Green Party to the Democrats. And that's when she ran and was elected to the Arizona House and then the Arizona Senate. 
and then the U.S. House, and then the U.S. Senate. So she's had a very linear trajectory in politics Mm -hmm. thus far. But the same progressivism that she ran on when she was in lower um, houses of politics is not where she's sitting currently. And a lot of people who worked to get her elected to the Senate actually feel as though she kind of betrayed them. Since now she's fighting her party on key priorities versus, you know, fighting to end the filibuster to increase minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that she went so far as to join the Blue Dog Democrats, I think, says a lot about where she's at politically, considering she started as an anti-war activist and a member of the Green Party, as you said. And a lot of people who've worked for her, political observers in Arizona who've watched her rise have commented that she seems very adept at sort of following the political wins. And in order to, you know, in order to achieve that sort of linear trajectory you talked about, she has had to modify her own politics. She'll say that well, I'm really good at changing my mind or, or I'm always open to listening to other people's viewpoints, but it's hard not to look at how far she's moved and think, you know, this is somebody who is more concerned with getting elected to the next highest rank than following any sort of political ideology that she might have come upon, honestly. <laughs> Right. And as we've seen before, that flakiness gets less and less effective as um, the office that you're seeking gets bigger. That was one of the Mm -hmm. issues that we saw during the 2020 campaign with um, Vice President Kamala Harris's candidacy. A lot of the criticism surrounding her was, frankly, racist and sexist. Um, But within that, the criticism that was valid was um, just her flakiness and the fact that she no one really understood what she stood for or what her core Mm -hmm. beliefs were. And so when you can't pin yourself to an issue deftly, it just doesn't play out well in bigger elections. So don't know what cinema's bigger aspirations are, but I don't think that this is going to serve her on a larger stage. Truthfully, though, um, this is another example of why people shouldn't stand politicians. I think that the stand culture around fallible political figures is um, interesting and not sustainable in itself. But Christina, what is your take on cinema considering that you've been covering her for a couple years? I mean, I used to really appreciate her honestly for the visual interest that she brought to Congress. I won't say that I loved her, that I wanted her clothes for myself, but I appreciated that, you know, either she was trying to express herself through her wardrobe in ways that most other members of Congress weren't, or that she thought, you know, this is a way for me to stand out from the crowd. And she was right about that. It was basically the only reason to talk about her because Democrats weren't in power. You know, they didn't have much sway over the uh, national agenda, especially when Trump was president. And her politics themselves didn't really attract that much scrutiny. You know, you could say, oh, you know, I wish she would vote this way or, you know, she abandoned her commitment to blah, but she wasn't, she didn't have the kind of power she has now where she's really standing in the way of her own party achieving what they set out to achieve. And it's worth mentioning, and a lot of people in the recent reporting around her have raised this, 
you know, her party is in the majority for the first time in her career. And so she has more power than ever. Her party actually stands to do something in the legislature she's a part of. And as that's been happening, her style and her personal demeanor have gotten increasingly bizarre to the point where it's hard not to talk about her politics without talking about the reasons why she's been in the news for non-political reasons lately. For instance, when she voted against raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour as part of the coronavirus relief bill, she walked up you know, to the floor of the Senate gave a thumbs down gesture and sort of popped her knee a little bit or like popped her hip. It kind of looked like she was curtsying or like doing a little sassy pose. A lot of people looked at that, especially, you know, economic justice advocates and said, this is incredibly disrespectful, especially when you are voting against you're basically voting to consign people to poverty wages in the U.S. And you're doing it in such a way that is attracting a lot of attention and seemingly flippant. It should be noted that um, oftentimes on the floor, senators will vote by giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So it isn't the thumbs down itself so much as it is the thumbs down in conjunction with the curtsy. Yeah, that's a good point. Meanwhile, her press secretary told HuffPost that it was sexist to criticize Kirsten Cinema for doing that, and that commentary about a female senator's body language, clothing, or physical demeanor does not belong in a serious media outlet. I don't believe that somebody who is conspicuously dresses outside the norm doesn't believe that a person's wardrobe and self-presentation sends a message worthy of analyzing in political media. I don't know. Did you think that was sexist? I know some people did. Some people who weren't even uh, her own press secretary. So I don't think that the bulk of criticisms um, around the curtsy were sexist. I think that on an issue as serious as raising the minimum wage, you know, there are people in this country who can't afford their rent. They can't afford food. They can't afford basic necessities that they need to live and raising the minimum wage. And we can have a separate show where we talk about whether or not 15 is enough, (laughs) but raising the minimum wage from what it is now would help people be able to do more of that. And so I'm sorry, like you don't get to come up and curtsy and then do a thumbs down on such a serious issue. And then say that the response to that is sexist when it, isn't. Mm. I mean, so the 19th reported that, according to some sources in the Senate, what she was doing was responding to a group of staffers, nonpartisan staffers, who had read the whole 628-page bill aloud because a Republican senator asked them to. She had brought them a cake. They were thanking her, I guess, maybe non-verbally or in a way that we couldn't perceive from the video. And she was acknowledging their thanks by sort of doing a little flip of her hip. Whether or not that's true, I think the the fact that she wasn't able to internalize or decided not to internalize the fact that this was a very important vote that had important material consequences for people such that maybe this isn't the time to make a funny gesture while you're voting. 
it doesn't say a lot of good things about her intentions. And it certainly, it doesn't do much to convince me that she, you know, is earnestly devoted to, as she said, raising the minimum wage to some lower amount in a different process outside of the COVID relief bill. Case in point, not too long after the curtsy, she wore a ring in a photo that she then posted to social media. The ring said, fuck off. She was sipping a glass of sangria when she posted it. To me, this had real uh, Madison Cawthorn vibes, like, oh, you know, cry more lib. Again, it's it's unclear, like, to whom it's referring I'm I'm guessing she wanted it to say something because otherwise, if you are a senator, you don't wear something with words on it in a social media post unless you are trying to send a message. But it, it's baffling to me because she's not a bad politician. She has won some tough races. She's very image conscious, maybe even more so than most politicians. But this seems like a bad move for a politician to make because really, like the least her constituents could ask of her is that she pretends to empathize with them and not react so dismissively toward their concerns. But I read a quote from a former cinema staffer in The Atlantic who said that cinema was more about creating an image than actually making policy. And the staffer contrasted her with Joe Manchin, the conservative Democrat from West Virginia, and said she's not actually conservative on certain issues the way that he is, but she wants to be seen as different. So considering that she is very image conscious and maybe to the exclusion of, you know, substance, like actual policies that she might be concerned about, what kind of image is she trying to create here? You have to imagine that she believes, maybe correctly, that what Arizonans want is a senator who is, you know, not politically correct, doesn't care what people think, wears a fuck offering, you know, like, um, is sort of like triggering, for lack of a better word. Um, And maybe she's reading the room and recognizing in the Trump era that a lot less capable people have gone a lot further than she has on a lot less substance than she has. And maybe all of these little like mini scandals are deliberate, a deliberate strategy. What do you think? I don't know. Maybe I'm giving her too much credit. I don't know if it's giving her too much credit so much as it is. um, To me, that that whole situation around the fuck offering was regardless of its intent or if it had intent or not, or even if she wasn't thinking about it, the thing about that situation that really stood out to me was just the lack of reading the room. And if you're a politician, you have to be able to read the room. Now you might read the room and not give a fuck what the room is saying, but you still have to be able to (laughs) read the room and kind of understand, which was to your point, the point that you made a little bit later, you still have to understand what your constituents want. And just to kind of loop back to that CNN article, interviewing organizers who felt betrayed by the stances that she's making now. I mean, these are the people who work to get you elected and organizers elect people who they think will carry forward the greater good for constituents. And Mm -hmm. things like this don't really foster good faith amongst your constituents, especially on something as serious as 
raising the minimum wage. My good, I. It just kind of baffles me that that someone would handle such a serious moment um, during a pandemic and during a global economic crisis just so flippantly. I agree with you that Paul Jones have the have to read the room. I think maybe the room she's reading is different from the one a lot of these organizers think she should be reading. So she thinks her room is, you know, the people who sometimes vote Republican who actually voted for her and not like the Latino voters whose massive turnout rates in 2018 actually elected her to the Senate. And this is sort of a tale as old as time in politics, especially actually almost exclusively in progressive politics where Democrats sort of forget their base and forget the people who or ignore the people who actually got them elected in favor of like courting some imaginary middle of the road voter, whereas conservatives do the exact opposite. They're like way more conservative than their constituents are in in most cases. Yeah, that's a good point. The Democrats do often forget about um, who exactly elected them to office. So it's a good point. I can't necessarily push back on that in good faith. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then I'm going to quit while I'm ahead and uh, we're going to take a break here. But if you like what you're hearing and want to hear more from me and Julia on another topic, make sure to stay tuned for our Slate Plus segment, Gateway Feminism, where today Julia and I talk about one thing that helped make us feminists. I will be talking about my time on a co-ed soccer team in middle school and a protest t-shirt I made. And Julia will be talking about her great-grandmother. Here's a clip from that. Just having her tell me, like ingrain that belief in me that I can do it. Even when I hit walls, I'm just like, I just, I I go back to that, even when I hit walls and I understand glass ceilings and systemic oppression, obviously, but it's still just nice to be able to go back to that whenever those moments of being barred from something because you're Black pop up. I want to get into the main reason why cinema has been attracting more attention and scrutiny now than she ever has before. And that's the filibuster. So with a 50-50 divided Senate and Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker, the Democrats need to get 10 Republicans on board with any non-budgetary legislation they want to pass while the filibuster is in place. So in other words, The Democrats will not get anything done while they're in power unless they kiss the filibuster goodbye. And Cinema and Joe Manchin have been really the only staunch holdouts on filibuster reform. Some of the other senators have sort of said, "Mm, I don't think it's a great idea, but like they could be convinced, you know, they're just sort of saying that. But if it actually came down to it, they would they would vote to reform the filibuster or get rid of it. Um, but Cinema has gone even further than Manchin on this, and she says she wants to expand the filibuster to include presidential nominations as well. Here's a clip of her defending the filibuster in a video that was tweeted by Sahil Kapoor. Well, as folks in Arizona know, I've long been a supporter of the filibuster because it is a tool that protects the democracy of our nation rather than allowing our country to ricochet wildly every two to four years back and forth between policies 
the idea of the filibuster was created by those who came before us in the United States Senate to create comedy and to encourage senators to find bipartisanship and work together. And while there are some who don't believe that bipartisanship is possible, I think that I'm a daily example that bipartisanship is possible. Not just this trip today and tomorrow that John and I are doing, but the work that John and I and I and many other of my colleagues in both parties do on a regular basis. So to those who say we must make a choice between the filibuster and X, I say this is a false choice. The reality is, is that when you have a system that's not working effectively, and I would think that most would agree that the Senate's not a particularly well-oiled machine, right? The way to fix that is to change your behavior, not to eliminate the rules or change the rules, but to change your behavior. So I'm going to continue to go to work every day, aggressively seeking bipartisanship um, in a you know, cheerful and happy warrior way, as I always do, and showing that when we work together, we can get things done. So none of what she said is true. <laughs> the filibuster was not created by the founding fathers. It was sort of a loophole in the Senate rules. It was not intentionally created at all, certainly not by the founding fathers, which who cares what they thought. But for the sake of arguing on cinema's terms, it does matter that the founding fathers did not want to require a supermajority for passing legislation. It was not a deliberate way to, as she said, create comedy and encourage bipartisanship. It was kind of a random, a random interpretation of the rules that has been largely in the past used to oppose civil rights legislation. Julia, how have you been thinking about this? That actually leads me directly into what I mentioned earlier, which was the comparison to Barry Goldwater, mm -hmm. um, which would, again, just make me immediately reconsider whatever it was that I was doing. Um, <laughs> so... Joan Walsh, who writes for The Nation, connected this to Barry Goldwater, who is a former senator from Arizona, alluding that the way to end racism was to change hearts and minds and not laws. Yes, that's where that mainstream narrative comes from. Um, and so that is just the hit that I, again, personally, I would not want to take a hit like that. I would not want to be compared <laughs> to Barry Goldwater ever in my life. And I, do, I doubt you will be. I think you're living <laughs> your life on the right track as far as that's concerned. <laughs> Thank God. Um, <laughs> but that aside, the filibuster was used, as you said, during the 50s and 60s to block civil rights legislation. And now Cinema and Manchin holding out on reform is slowing down the passage of the For the People Act, which would expand voting rights, stop voters from being purged from the rolls, and mandate that independent commissions handle congressional redistricting to prevent what happened in North Carolina from happening elsewhere, just mm. as one state example. For as far as gerrymandering goes? Yes. Yeah. Um, where Black voters were targeted with, quote, surgical precision. And Cinema also co-sponsored this bill when she was in the House. So, and now she's she's saying, you know, because I'm so committed to bipartisanship, I, I'm more committed to bipartisanship or like the myth of bipartisanship than I am to passing this legislation that I co-sponsored. Yes, I think that's a good read of it. So it's let's say interesting to me that the set of bills that she is holding up by supporting the filibuster or refusing to consider filibuster reform includes a voting rights bill named for John Lewis, which is, you know, 
essential to the future of democracy, voting rights as we know them, and probably cinema's future career. Because in 2015, at the start of that Congress, as there is at the start of any Congress, there's an election to determine who will lead each party. At the time, almost everybody, almost every Democrat voted for Nancy Pelosi, not Kirsten Sinema. She said she wanted to elect John Lewis to lead the party. And she said, you know, he's my hero. Well, the fact that she calls him a hero, publicly embraces him as, you know, a civil rights icon, and now is working against the substance of what he stood for, is to me like the peak peak toxic white lady energy, where, again, as we talked about in the first segment, it's all about image for her. The idea of John Lewis is great. What he actually stood for, among other things, voting rights for black people in the U.S., is, you know, we throw that aside when it doesn't fit what we want for ourselves. I mean, I think that's that's more than fair. And that's one of the bigger issues with politics is that so much of it can become performative and can become about how individual politicians feel. And in certain situations like this one, you have one or two individuals holding up legislation that could fundamentally change lives um, for broader swaps of America. And that in itself is... I mean, frankly, it's just really annoying. Like, it's it's really frustrating to see that a small number of people can really hold up massive changes in life for millions of people. What did you make of her, all her talk about bipartisanship? And, you know, that's that's sort of her argument for defending the filibuster. So her her hope that saving the filibuster will foster bipartisanship. I I mean, I just think that that's a lost cause. It doesn't really make any sense, especially after the past, what year is it, 2021? After the past like five or six years? I just don't understand where anyone who has been paying attention to politics or someone who is a politician where they would get that idea from. And maybe it's a pipe dream. It kind of has to be because does anyone really think that Mitch McConnell... Cindy Hyde-Smith or Tom Cotton are going to, like, cave on their positions on voting rights. I mean, it's just, I guess. It's also, like, I'm just trying to put myself in her shoes, in part because I really love her, you know, the -the over-the-knee boots that she loves to wear, but also because I'm trying to understand how somebody could work alongside the people you just mentioned and watch them work against something as fundamental to democracy as voting rights and something like the, you know, commission to investigate January 6th. <laughs> like these these aren't a group of people who are making reasonable and good faith arguments about, a, you know, a policy that all manner of people can have fine positions on. Like we're talking about really um, like bread and butter issues for the future of the country as we know it and fairness in politics and elections. So when she talks about bipartisanship, I mean, 
I don't think she's naive. I think she knows exactly who these people are, but she loves the idea of herself as somebody who can please both sides. She knows that that image has been essential to her political success, considering she has basically no actual legislative accomplishments. So in in this climate, where the Republicans you mentioned and much more have demonstrated absolutely no desire to compromise and work with Democrats. I don't think they they could find 10 Republicans willing to compromise in good faith with the Democrats. I think bipartisanship talk can be best read as an electioneering tactic and, and sort of a campaign talking point and not as an actual philosophy of lawmaking. I mean, even if when you look at people like Susan Collins, who is another person who talks a lot about how bipartisan she is, That's how she keeps getting elected in Maine, which is an extremely Democratic state. If you look at the bills they've actually worked on with members of other parties, they're, you know, usually not that far reaching or controversial and, you know, sometimes important, sometimes less important. There are things like the bipartisan bills that she got credit for in all of these bipartisan rankings. A lot of them just die in committee or or the ones that do make it to a vote are sort of bipartisan by nature and not actually any like huge feat of deal making and compromising. So like, I don't think bipartisanship is really a thing anymore. If it ever was, we have just a little bit of time left, but I want to ask you, Julia, Kirsten Cinema has been attracting a lot of criticism for exactly what we've been talking about. The fact that she is maybe the only person, maybe one of two people really holding up the Democratic agenda. But she's also been attracting some bad faith criticism uh, for all of the sexist reasons why you might expect her wigs, her clothes, her boots, people saying, you know, this isn't appropriate for a senator. I can't take her seriously when she's wearing a pink sweater that says dangerous creature. Do you think she's using that mean-spirited criticism as an excuse for her to ignore all criticism? So I I honestly don't think me or anyone else can speak to whether or not she's using the sexist critiques that she does get and using those as a shield just for general behavior that is worthy of criticizing. But what I do think is that criticizing behavior that should be criticized <laughs> is not necessarily sexist. Just to loop back to the to the curtsy um, that we were talking about earlier, the criticism around the curtsy wasn't about a woman doing a curtsy. It was about someone doing a curtsy during a vote on minimum wage. Mm-hmm. It was about flippant behavior during a very serious moment. And so while I won't pretend to know the inner workings of their policy decisions, what I will say is that there are times when the response from her office does write off valid critique as sexist. And it's that's not always the case. But people talking about her wigs and her sweaters, like, yeah, that's like... That's not the point here. Yeah. I've even had people tell me that 
I'm sexist for writing approvingly about her clothing. But, you know, I tend to think that politicians know that their image matters and that whatever clothes they choose are chosen deliberately to create an image for themselves. So it's, I don't think it's inappropriate to analyze what that message might be. Especially since historically fashion choices have been used to convey messages. Like that's part (laughs) of the reason why fashion Fashion is fashion. All right. On that note, which can be applied to all episodes of The Waves, past, present, and future, we want to give you some recommendations before we leave. Julia, what are you loving right now? So it was very hard for me to choose one thing. But right now, I am loving finishing books. I finished my first book in like a year yesterday. Um, and I don't care if people judge me about that because at the end of the day, I pay my rent. So it doesn't really matter how you feel about me not reading that often. (laughs) What book was Um, it? It was The Vanishing Half. So this was a book. Yeah, a book that I literally started about a year ago and I finally finished it. So I recommend finishing books. That was a really good book. I I read it not too long ago, too. And that was by Britt Bennett. I am recommending something for Pride Month. So if you're queer, I hope you are partying this month in whatever way feels right for you. And whoever you are, Pride Month is a good excuse to learn something new about queer politics. To that end, I'm recommending a conversation between the political analyst Amy Walter and Sasha Eisenberg. Uh, It was hosted by Politics and Prose. You can find it on YouTube. And it's about Eisenberg's new book, The Engagement, about the movement for equal marriage. You can read the whole book, but it's almost a thousand pages. So if you don't want to do that, watch this conversation. It's a really good primer on parts of the history of that movement that can sort of be hard to hear with all of the extremely loud corporations this month telling us that, you know, love wins and love is love. Most interestingly to me is the reminder that there has always been a rift among LGBTQ activists who wanted to focus on marriage rights and those who wanted to prioritize other issues that were more closely entwined with survival, healthcare, economic justice, that kind of stuff. Because the movement is not a monolith, marriage really didn't become a major focus until the religious right made it one. You know, they started passing all these laws saying you can't get married. So gays were like, well, guess we're going to fight this. So they kind of got baited into a more conservative movement priority by the backlash to increasing acceptance of queer people in public life. So it's a good reminder, you know, as people make their yearly fuss about how anti-cop and anti-corporate activism at Pride is too divisive and is tearing the community apart, that the community has never really agreed on anything. And there's always been tension between assimilationist and liberationist branches of the movement. So again, this conversation that I watch and you should watch is between Amy Walter and Sasha Eisenberg, hosted by Politics and Prose. It's on YouTube. That's our show for the week. 
The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Susan Matthews is our editorial director with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. And we have additional production help from Rosemary Belson. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate it, and review it wherever you get your podcasts. And consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. We'd also love to hear from you. So email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.